I'm going to have you stand uh, as we read the scripture one more time. I promise this is possibly the last time uh, before we go. Uh, we're going to be reading, uh, we've been going through Psalm 32. We're going to be reading Psalm 32 right now. It says, A Maskell of David, Psalm 32. Blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord counts no iniquity, and in whose spirit there is no deceit. For when I kept silent, my bones wasted away through all uh, my groaning all day long. For day and night your hand was heavy upon me, my strength was dried up as by the heat of summer. I acknowledged my sin to you, and I did not cover my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgression to the Lord, and you forgave the iniquity of my sin. Therefore, let everyone who is godly offer prayer to you at a time when you may be found. Surely, in a rush of great waters, they shall not reach him. You are a hiding place for me. You preserve me from trouble. You surround me with shouts of deliverance. I will instruct you and teach you in the way you should go. I will counsel you with my eye upon you. Be not like a horse or a mule without understanding, which must be curved with a bit and bridle, or it will not stay near you. Many are the sorrows of the wicked, but steadfast love surrounds the one who trusts in the Lord. Be glad in the Lord and rejoice, O righteous. And shout for joy, all you upright in heart. I'll read that again. Many are the sorrows of the wicked, but steadfast love surrounds the one who trusts in the Lord. Be glad in the Lord and rejoice, O righteous. And shout for joy, all you upright in heart. This is the word of God. We can sit down. I'm going to lead us into prayer for a little bit. Lord, we thank you for your gracious words, for your words that reveal to us your holiness, that reveals to us the condition of our hearts, that reveals to us the condition of this world and our lives every day. This is a grace from you for us who are born sinners, who are people who have committed sin after sin after sin. This is your grace in Christ Jesus, our Lord, who died on our behalf that we may be pardoned, that our eyes may be opened, that we may see your glory and your beauty. Lord, I pray that you come and speak to us today these very words, that you reveal the truth within, that you transform our lives. You teach us how to believe, how to walk, how to be strong, how to deal with sin and everything in life through this song. Father, we pray that your spirit come and open our hearts that we might actually learn, that he may fill this room, that your presence may be with us throughout this time. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So um, last week, you guys remember, we had a conversation from the psalm, um, and David is talking in the psalm about this person whom he calls blessed or happy, contented, this person whose who's God's favor is upon them. And we tried to investigate why he says that, 
And one of the, th like the three things he mentions is transgression, sin, and iniquity. And we went through that deeply. And we saw that how these things are forgiven for this person. And then um, we realized because of that, this person's spirit's inner being is in line with their outward appearance, especially before God, but before everyone. By the cleansing of sin, iniquity, and transgression, God makes the spirit of the person clean, is what we saw. But then David talks about his experience with sin, his struggle with sin. He, takes, he tells us what not to do and what to do. What not to do? Hide your transgression. If you try to keep it in your spirit, if you sin and you're trying to hide from God, you're trying to be quiet about it, he says, your whole body is going to turn against you. Your spirit is going to turn against you. It's going to be like being dehydrated, right? It's like heat exhaustion, he says, to give us an image, right? My whole spirit turns against me, he says. But then he says, I acknowledge my sin before the Lord. He tells us what to do. And as soon as I spoke my sin, I asked for forgiveness from the Lord. I confessed it with loud speaking. He says, I said, I will confess my sins to the Lord. When I did that, the Lord forgave me, he says. His iniquity, the iniquity of my sin, he says. So he says to the godly, he turns to the people who believe in Christ, those who trust in God. He says to them, saints, do not keep your sins to yourself. Offer a prayer of repentance. Offer a prayer for deliverance before the Lord, and he will heal you, basically. That's where we stop, right? Um, today we continue from uh, the seventh verse. Um, in the in the psalm, um, but then I'm going to touch up on the last part of the sixth verse. A verse it says, "Therefore, let let everyone who's godly offer prayer to you at a time when you may be found. Surely, in a rush of great waters, they shall not reach him." First of all, it's good to understand what that word "godly" means. It doesn't mean these are amazing people that never sin. These are amazing people that are exceptionally better than everybody else. That's not what it means, right? It means people who have, who have faith in God through Christ, who have a repentant lifestyle. What, what are we told when we first hear the gospel? What must we do? We must believe and repent. So by definition, these are the people who repented and who are repenting daily for every sin that they go through. So these are believers. These are believers who really know, I'm a sinner, but Jesus Christ, Christ paid for my sin on the cross, and I'm forgiven. But then I need to bring myself in faith and repentance to God daily. So this is the identity and the reality uh, of what it means to be a godly person. So it's not just a title. It's not like saying this person. Or saying somebody that did something a long time ago, it's an identity. It's who they are today. It's, they're repentant. They admit they're sinners. And they are living by the grace of God. And only Christ Jesus is perfect and he is the sacrifice that they hope in. We just were singing that, right? Why should I share from Jesus' reward, right? I don't have an answer for that. I know he paid for all my sins. That's what we just saying, right? I believe that. I live in that reality.
So if you don't see uh, this idea, this reality of being a Christian affecting every part of your life, I just want you to know it should. It should affect every area of your life and every moment of your life. This recognition that we are fallen sinners and Christ is our Savior and God is merciful to us should permeate every part of who you are, every portion of your life, every second of your life. So these are neither, uh, sorry, there are neither godly people who practice sin nor ungodly people who practice righteousness by this definition, right? Godly people practice righteousness. Ungodly people cannot do anything but sin. That's the way the Bible puts it. They practice sin, right? So that's the way I want you to look at it. When he says he's godly, he's, he's talking about these people who are godly. He's saying it's not because they're amazing that they're godly, right? It's because of what God has done through Christ for them, and by faith they are godly. But not only that, this transfer, this, this reality, this truth actually transforms who they are from the core so that their lives, it, their lives are marked by a practice of righteousness from there and on. So it's not like they have their own merits. When they do righteousness, they like approve themselves and say, I'm doing great. No. It's the grace of God that enabled you to do this. But it's not like it's just a title where they're just like, I believe in Christ and I trust in him and he paid for my sins and I'm not going to do anything. I'm just going to live like the world. They're not like that. Does that make sense? So these are what, whom, like in this place, sorry, uh, David is addressing. He says to the godly, these people, who are zealous to practice righteousness, who only trust in Christ, who give all the glory to God, he calls them. These people who are repentant and faithful, he says to them, pray to God. He says, let them offer a prayer to you at a time when you may be found. Or simply put, let the godly be godly. (laughs) Don't, be a godly person who says, I'll do good tomorrow. Because that tomorrow will never come because we're fallen sinners that are still being sanctified. We're not perfect. We prefer sin. We love sin. We enjoy it. That's why we commit it. It's not, sin is not forcing us to do it. Sin is enticing us and exciting us. And we don't feel anything bad about committing sin. It feels good. We can't even tell we're sinning most of the time, right? So David is saying, but the godly don't live like that. The godly, their lives are not defined by sin after sin or indifference towards sin or just like presumptuous lifestyle. They're defined by repentance. They're defined by testing themselves according to the word of God. They're defined by offering prayer of repentance before God. Asking the Lord, Lord, test my heart and show me the iniquity in it, the sin in it. So let the godly be godly is basically what that boils down to. So offer prayer of repentance and deliverance to God within the time he has prepared for repentance and prayer. And this is one of the other dimensions of repentance and sin that we usually struggle with. If I did something to someone today, 
it may be extremely late to apologize tomorrow, right? If I did something to someone years ago, it's way better to apologize today than one year later, right? As soon as it comes to my mind, as soon as I recognize this sin that I have committed. So prayer and repentance are time sensitive, and we know this by default as humans, right? It's, there is time that is too late for apologies, right? But then with God, it's not too late just for apologies. With God, it's just, it's like, I don't know, darkness and light. It's forever. It's eternal life and eternal death at some point, right? At the end of our lives. At times, it's like either God will help you and he will be against you is what you're getting. Even as a saint, that's what David taught us last week. If you hide your sin, your own spirit is going to turn against you. Your own energy is going to be upside down that you're going to feel drained within your spirit. There's that. And then if you go on a little further, you will not be able to tell the difference between you sinning and doing righteousness. Like you'd be perfectly fine in the world. You can't tell. And if you go a little bit further, even if you try to repent, your repentance is going to be shallow. It's going, it's going to be useless. I mean, you guys remember Esau, right? He sold his birthright. He did everything according to his own plan. And ultimately, he desired to repent about it. He couldn't. There was no repentance beyond a certain point for Esau, right? So we see that kind of life even in the Christian life. I'm not here to scare you. But the truth is like that. And life works like that. Right? Like if someone comes in here and breaks every chair and like leaves, we might be pretty surprised, shocked. Everybody flees, like gets out of the room. We're worried. We might call the police. And then if that person apologizes, we might be like, we don't want to place any charges. But if that person does it every week, there's a problem. And then if that person does more destructive stuff, then ultimately we really want something serious to happen. Right? Just like that, we're like that. We're behaving like that before God. We don't have any filter to figure out. We're still doing something destructive in his sight. So David is saying, don't just keep going. Really apologize. Really repent. Really ask the Lord to deliver you even from your sin. Ask the Lord to sharpen your heart, your mind, to understand what is sin. Ask the Lord to make your heart tender, to recognize your sin is evil. So, biblically speaking, we are sinners who are being sanctified and are being sanctified by God. Because He is the one we sinned against, we have to seek Him to forgive us, to restore us. Not only that, because he is God and he is the only one who can do this for us, we have to seek his face. And because he's our father, this is a very, the, the closest relationship in your life, period. The most important relationship in your life. He's the one who loves you unconditionally, even through our sins. God's love for us does not change. That's incredible. 
So don't take that as an opportunity to presume on his goodness as it doesn't matter whether I sin or not. Take that as an opportunity of how good he is, how loving he is, how amazing it would be to truly acknowledge our sins before him since we couldn't stop sinning. So this is what we have. Uh, like when we were talking about repentance, it's time sensitive. It's very specific to God's will for our lives. It's very specific to God's word. You can't apologize in a way that you are used to. You apologize or you repent in a way that God's word calls us to repent. One of the things that God's word is saying, revealing to us in this place is, don't hide your sin, confess it. And the second thing is, don't just confess your sin, confess it in the time that God has prepared. So repentance is very time sensitive. So we're not sovereign over our repentance. Obviously, it shouldn't be like that. But because of sin, we might think like that. I will apologize when I want to, when I feel like it. But God is sovereign over our repentance. And he's the one we sinned against. So by definition, he's the only one who can forgive us. But it's more than that. It's more than like us being the sinners and him being the one we sinned against. It's deeper than that. God is also a sovereign God, a holy God. Everything he does, nobody tells him like what to do, when to do it. Nobody could stop him, actually. Like, there is no power in the world. There is no knowledge in the world to even know what God is doing, understand what his ways are like. He says, my ways are greater than you, your ways, just like the heavens are greater than the earth, like above the earth, as far from the earth as you see them to be. So, he is the one who created all things. He's sovereign. He's holy. He's good. Like his perfections, we don't even understand. What is sin in his sight? How infinitely destructive and evil it is, we don't even get. So by that virtue itself, right, we have to seek the kind of forgiveness he gives. We have to understand what true repentance looks like from him instead of us dictating the terms of our repentance. Especially, David says, when it comes to the idea of time, the Lord is the one who sovereignly, in his own private decisions, makes, allocates the time. God is the one who knows what's right and what's wrong. And he's the only one who can forgive us whom we sinned against. All fallen people, including us, don't even see their sins unless God opens their eyes to see that they have sinned. Nor do we respond in repentance, even if we saw our sins by our own might, unless the Lord opens our hearts for repentance or softens our hearts for repentance. So the good big question is, how much time are we talking about here? How can I tell? How long is the time that the Lord may be found? 
how far does this spread? How far does this go? How much time do I have for my sins? If I see them and now that I see them. The shortest answer? Now. Now is the response. It's not five minutes, five years, five seconds. It's not 10 years. It, it's not a lifetime. It's now. As immediately as you can repent. Because if you see your sin, that's God's grace revealing your sin to you. Think of it this way. If God showed you exactly how you are, you can't handle it. If God showed me how evil I am today, I wouldn't be standing here. So by God's grace, we are being blocked from seeing the brokenness that is within us. You know who knows about our brokenness? Christ, who paid for every sin we ever committed, who suffered. Right before he went to the cross, his problem is not the crucifixion that's the bigger deal. It's the bunch of sins that we have committed that have to be laid upon him, and he had to pay the wrath. He had to take the wrath of God onto himself to pay for those sins. Christ knows exactly every small sin we've ever committed. And he paid for it. He knows the punishment for it. He knows the evil in it. It would have taken us forever to pay just for one sin. And it wouldn't be over. But he took on the sins of the whole world and every sin we've ever committed. And we will ever commit in this lifetime. He knows. We don't. So by, from the beginning, you can see how much grace God has poured into our lives to keep us unaware of how sinfully we are behaving or we are as, as people. So if God opens your heart to see your sin, He's actually taking a tiny portion of where we are and who we are inside and showing us, guess for what reason? For repentance. That you may turn from this broken thing that not only is offensive in the side, that is destroying your own life. Is what the Word of God teaches us. So as soon as you know about your sin, it's because God is graceful enough to open your eyes to your sin so that you may repent. And it's like taking off a, bo a burden from your life. It's just stop carrying the whole world on your shoulders, basically. It's worse, that's what David told us, that your bones will feel like they melted. Instead of supporting you, they become a weight on your body. That's the way you feel when you carry sin and you don't repent of it. So what's the time limit? Now, don't take a second. Repent immediately. You feel alive. So every sin, it's different. Like, for every sin, it's now. For every individual, for each one of us, when should I repent of all, all my sins that I know about? Now. Where should I repent of this particular sin? Now. When should the local church, us together, repent before the Lord about all our collected sins? And our sins that come about when we interact with one another in the church now.
by this time you got me, I hope. How about, how about the whole church around the world? Now. How about, how about like the whole span of history, mankind? When should mankind repent? Now. God's word says in the gospels, today is the day of salvation. Tomorrow is not guaranteed. Not for a saint, not for a non-believer. They came to Jesus and said to him, what do you think about the people that Pilate killed and he mixed their blood with, their, with the sacrifices in the temple? He says, lest you repent, you'll perish likewise. You forgot something. That God has been so gracious to you, regardless of how much pain you feel on the side of eternity. For your sins, not other people's sins. That's not your problem. Your problem is your own sins. And God is being merciful and waiting for you to repent and to be safe and in union with Him. To humble yourself, to, to be covered by His presence. But that's what we have in this place. So... It's now for all of mankind. In history, repentance is now. Tomorrow is not guaranteed for a lot of reasons. One is, just like I said, a lot of things happen to people's lives. Nobody's time is guaranteed on this earth. I could be, this could be it for me right now. Two, Jesus Christ is going to return. And he's not going to return in a time when people know it, especially if you are in sin and like not unrepentant about that sin, you'll be the last person to know about it. So it's now, any moment now. It's been that way for 2,000 years. So there's no guarantee in keeping our sins and continuing in our path. But to just build up speed from here we can see like just this idea of like there's a time limit to repentance takes us into a lot of thoughts so that when I go through the rest of this psalm, you're going to realize I'm just flying by. But there is so much to see even while flying by the psalm. This is a psalm that is a masculine like we talked about the other time. A masculine is something you slow down and meditate on. This used to be a song that the people sang as they went yearly to repent before the Lord for the Day of Atonement. They sang it together. They remembered the words of the Lord. They remembered the promise of the Lord that how blessed a person is who is forgiven by God. They had no idea Christ was coming in Israel, but we do as believers. We're blessed because Christ died for the ungodly who we were but no longer are. So it says, surely, if the time is now, um, it says, for the one who offers up repentance, prayer of repentance, now, obviously, right? Now, the rush of great waters, they shall not reach him. I mean, you might be confused by that imagery. It's very simple. In Israel or in the, in the Old Testament scriptures or in the Hebrew scriptures, a rush of many waters is like the worst disaster you can imagine, right? Turbulent waters, waters 
by generally like this body of water it's not a place that human beings are supposed to live in but it's kind of like this shaky foundation this like hostile foundation that you can't stand on survive on whatever you're being engulfed by you cannot control your destiny on so it's it's trouble when you think about waters and we're not talking about calm water we're talking about turbulent water water that is got waves and it's just uncontrollable it's able to consume you any moment it's unpredictable that's what they called trouble well david is here saying a rush of many waters so like the best thing that i can do for you is like a thought experiment like imagine standing somewhere wherever and then imagine like 20 30 feet waves coming at you from all sides there's no way to start and he's saying it's not only that you have this giant turbulent crazy waters that could kill you they're rushing at you there's no time you get that idea of now is the time of repentance and david is saying offer a prayer it's that easy with God. You cannot do anything. Like, let's say these waters that are 30, 20 feet, they're going to show up here, right? Like where you're standing, wherever that is. 20 days from now. I mean, you can imagine so many solutions. You can fly out of the area. I mean, like even if it's no hope, there's kind of hope there. Not with this imagery. Like, you're, you're gone. Like, now, almost. And you know what's faster than rushing, unpredictable, deadly trouble? A prayer of repentance. So it shows you the picture of how easy God has made it. But I really don't want you to take the wrong picture. It wasn't easy to pardon us. God is not unholy or unjust. Our sins are not meaningless. Christ paid for every one of those. What we do when we sin, when we transgress God's law, our guilt has a huge price. It requires a great ransom. The only reason why it's so easy is just a moment of sincere repentance. Turning away from our sin is because Christ took on those rushing waters. And it killed him. Literally. He died. He had to go to the abyss. Right? So, what are you imagining in this picture? Just as you're praying, you're completely bubbled with this protection. And in your place stands Christ. And he dies in your place. So no, it's not a substitute where like, oh yeah, like I got saved from this rush of waters, from the troubles of the troubles that I caused by my sin and my guilt and my iniquity, I mean my uh, transgression. It's more of, no, like, somebody has to die for this. 
Somebody has to suffer for this. And Jesus did die. And that's not nothing. The God who created heaven and earth died. Only Christianity could tell you that. Only the living God could teach you that. So our sin and our transgressions are not nothing. Which is why all the more we should be eager to repent. We should, which is why all the more we should be eager to do righteousness, to seek God's will, to follow His plan for our lives. It's not free. It's not cheap grace. It's not like, oh yeah, like whatever you do, it doesn't matter. Let's keep going. That may be how we live today. That's not how life works. That's not how reality works. Every sin brings with it more sin, more struggle, more destruction. All sin is trying to take us towards death. I mean, the price, the ransom payment required is death for each and every sin we commit, including white lie, including keeping half the truth, whatever you call it, or 1% of the truth. It doesn't matter. We have an infinitely holy God, and in His sight, it is that serious. So isn't it amazing what this psalm is telling us is? Yeah, like you have much trouble coming for you because of your sin, transgression, and iniquity or guilt. But it's not going to touch you. But then you should see the, the love that Christ had for you. He didn't just pardon you. He took on the pain of what is caused by our sins. He died for you. He needed to die for you. So there is this great display of love that we are protected from the consequences of our sin. So there is a greater display of love that it required death and the God of the universe decided to die on our behalf. That's unbelievable. That's why Christ tells us greater love has no one in this that one should die for his friends. He didn't sin. He is perfect. He's the last person that needed to die. So David turns to the Lord as we should. He says, you are a hiding place for me. I see this rushing waters. I see what my sin has caused. David has experienced this Consequence in his life, right? Whenever he sinned, he's seen how incredibly unbelievable the consequences are. I mean, we should look into our lives that way. We might think something is very simple, but all of a sudden, let's say, let's take a small example. We, we kind of tell a white lie. And then the next time somebody calls out, on, or calls out that lie on us and we tell more lie to hide from that lie. And all of a sudden, we're deceiving everyone with more lies and we're sinning more. And then, at some point, we're even deceiving ourselves. So that we can't tell what's the truth and what's the lie. Up to a point where it's just literally like another person is living our lives. That's great trouble right there. That's a lot of problem. But it started with a white lie. It's not so small, is it? That day you turn from it and said, yeah, I lied. I'm sorry. That's the only way to turn from it. <clears throat> and the first person that we should repent to, we should apologize to, 
is God. So you see, Sun says, you are a hiding place for me. All these troubles, all these big problems that I cannot solve, they're not just forgiven. There's consequences to everything that I am doing, right? I mean, how much do you think, how much do you guys imagine the consequences of our greed is? Not, I don't mean this church. Like human greed is on the planet. How much do you think like fraud Criminal activity of all kinds causes how much pain, how much suffering, how much struggle, how much better could things be if we just did one thing like slightly better than we do it nowadays? Like how much can human life be transformed by that? You can see the difference. You can see the effect of sin on the planet. The issue of the planet is not like weather problems first. Those are problems too, but like nah. That's not it. The first problem is human sin. What defiles God's good creation is human sin. What's keeping the planet struggling is human sin today. It's not animal sin. Other creatures don't sin. We do. So David sees that. No, this is me, right? Like, this is not what I deserve. So I realize you are a hiding place for me. You preserve me from trouble. You surround me with shouts of deliverance, he says. A hiding place means a covering. It means a secrecy. You hide my iniquity. You hide the consequences of my evil. You are a hiding place for me. You are a fortress for me, he says, from the results that I should have gotten from my sin. So how is a believer preserved from much trouble? God himself being his hiding place, her hiding place. No amount of trouble could get to us because of God's mighty hands, because of God's mercy, because Christ died for the ungodly and made us godly, not because of our merit and our goodness, but because of him who died, who is perfect, who fulfilled the law of God in a regular-looking human life who satisfied the law of God. We as believers are surrounded by trouble caused by us and other people, and we have an adversary, the devil, who constantly builds up a system that inspires sin, that deteriorates into worse and worse and worse sin. And this troubled world. In this world, we shouldn't survive for two minutes in. God is the reason we are alive. Not only for us, even these consequences are supposed to destroy all life, period, all existence. But they don't because God is merciful to us as well as non-believers. But then to us, this is a covenant love. He protects us. He protects us from all the troubles that show up because of our sins. As we continue in humble repentance, turning away from our sins before him on the things that he opens up our eyes to see. The Lord himself is our protection. This is only reconciled in who God is as a just as well as merciful God. As a God who is 
a just judge, but as well as a God who is able to pardon. I do something with the law that is not right. There is no judge in the country without committing guilt or com committing a crime could pardon me. None. God is not like that. He has given his son so that when he pardons, the sin is paid for. Just like if I had a traffic ticket, I go to court, somebody else paid it for me. Nobody has to convict me. I'm good. Our sins are not that small, but it's like that. We go to court, we're guilty, we're before a just judge. And he's not going to change the justice for us. But then Christ dies on our behalf. So that death sentence that is guaranteed on our behalf or to us is taken by him. So we are ransomed. We are free. It's paid for. We walk out. So only in who God is, in who God is, Father, Son, and Spirit, we are free. This, is, this could be reconciled. He's just, he will not let us without consequences to just walk out. But he's at the same time gracious, merciful to those who believe in Christ Jesus, in his son, and repent of their sins and shout for deliverance from him and him alone, because he's the only one who could do it. In the rush of many waters, they pray within the appropriate time God has given. So he says, you preserve me from trouble. Preserve means to watch, to guard, to keep. And trouble in this place, picturesque, like the picture that David is drawing is with a word called misar. And misar is translated narrow, a tight place, an opponent. So that imagery is not just there, it's also infused into that word. So you guard me or keep me from being shut off or destroyed by the many waters that arise because of my guilt and my sin. And he says, you surround me with shouts of deliverance. That bubble of protection around a believer, David says, that keeps you from being touched by all these troubles, that they're going to come. They're not going to disappear. It's not an illusion. They're there for real. But you're protected. You're not destroyed by them. David says. Because there's this shout of deliverance. It's more like God rebuking the waves. And we know what the word of God is like. The heavens come from nothing into existence by the word of God according to the book of Hebrews. He rebukes those waves. That's the picture David has in this place. And whatever trouble is surrounding us has no effect. It doesn't touch us. It ceases. It's, it's there, but it doesn't affect our lives. We don't pay for the sin because Christ did. So in this place, David takes another break. And this is our third break, Selah. In a song, you sing, and in the middle, you take a break. In our time, 
Maybe there's like instruments playing in the background and we stay quiet. Same thing, except when you meditate on this scripture, you take a break. You, you, take, you take apart this side and really like meditate on that particular idea. So he wants to consider how magnificent this reality is. Don't just listen to this and move on and dwell. But instead, sorry, dwell and meditate on it. Don't just listen to this and go back to regular life. Don't just listen to it and forget about it two minutes later. This is not just a story. This is not just a conversation. This is not just some philosophical idea. This is not a class in college. This is not one of the alternative realities in reality. No, this is base truth. This is the word of the living God. This is deliverance for the condition, the human condition. Ponder here. This is love from God. This is being exposed to who God is. You're seeing the holiness of God and the mercy of God and the justice of God. Don't just walk away from it. It's teaching you. It's transforming you. It's giving you hope. It's giving you confidence to come before God, to actually repent before Him, to shout to God when things are impossible for you so that He may deliver you. This is, thing, this is the one thing you need to remember when there's no time to do anything but repent. In that picture of like where you're about to be swallowed by the troubles of your life, I mean, there's no hope. We tried this, I tried that, I did that, it didn't work. If you remember this, you're one, like you're one second away from deliverance. You're, now you can be delivered, is what David has taught us in this place. And this is reconciled in who God is. So, David has taught us the crucial importance and, of repentance and offering to the Lord a sacrifice of timely prayer. He has helped us, helped us meditate on the grace of God and His mercy to save the ungodly and His covenant love to continue to pardon their sins and rebuke the consequences of their sin to keep them safe from all those troubles. That is the blessing. Happiness that He's talking about is that. In this world, it's not a surprise that we have many troubles. No, it's a surprise how we all make it through the day, through one moment in life. You know how? By God's mercy, by God's goodness. Jesus says, you be perfect, for your heavenly Father is perfect. He says, he allows his reign not just for the godly, not just for those who believe in Him, not just for those who repent, but to all, He allows them to have rain. I mean, it doesn't get more fundamental than that. Rain is food, by the way. He allows us to survive in this world regardless of our deserved consequences of our sins. And imagine billions of people continually struggling with sin, if not continually sinning, and how deadly that would be. And imagine adding to that a supernatural devil whose only desire is to kill, destroy, steal our lives. 
We are in a hostile environment. We survive. I mean, nobody imagines this kind of thing, right? You don't like take a, like a, a puppy, right? And like just throw the puppy in the middle of like a bunch of lions or like a volcano or something. Like you don't expect it to survive you would cringe. Like, you wouldn't even imagine doing that. It's so offensive. It's so painful. That's basically the picture that we're in in this world, is what David is teaching us. So he's teaching us, like, this is a blessing. This is true joy. This is true happiness. Like, especially, he's pointing to the God. He's pointing to the Christian. He's, he's pointing to the believer. Repentant, and he's saying, Can you imagine how joyful this is that you can just repent and everything, all the consequences are gone? Already, you are enjoying so many benefits of what Christ has done for you on the cross. Us not being tormented by the guilt of our sin is one of the biggest benefits we have in this world. So it's not surprising when we find consequences of sin affecting our lives. It might be for us, but from the truth's perspective, it's surprising when anything goes the right way, when anything is good. When we have a little bit of hope, that is really surprising. But this is all hope. It's like all the consequences are gone, safe from everything is what we're talking about. Good with God, good in life, good with man. Hope for eternal life is what David says. So he goes on, and I'm not going to go deeper into the rest. I will instruct you and teach you in the way you should go. God starts speaking. I will counsel you with my eye upon you. Be not like a horse or a mule without understanding, which must be curbed with a bit and bridle or it will not stay near you so this image here is like god is trying to give us wisdom he wants us to have wisdom like one of the biggest problems that we have with sin is we don't we're we don't know the holiness of god we don't know righteousness we don't know the evil of our sins we don't god says you need wisdom you need practical knowledge i'm gonna Instruct you, he says. I'm going to tell you which way to go. I, I'm going to tell you how to live, what to live for, what's important and what's not important. When to repent and when to rejoice. Then he says, I will teach you, which it is the same word, even if we try to get the meaning for it, is teaching us progressively increasing our knowledge just like any teaching that you see in everyday life he says i'm gonna store in your mind an understanding that will not abandon you i'm not he's not gonna give us a deliverance and leave us he's not gonna give us like fun and joy for a moment or thank god i've been rescued for a moment and leave us confused no he's gonna transform the way we think even so that, first of all, we don't commit the sin. And second of all, we do remember what God has done for us and learn how to repent 
in those circumstances. Then he says, I will lead you in the way that you must go. So this instruction and this teaching is not just some kind of knowledge. It's knowledge on which way? The righteous way. The way that leads to life. The way that is pleasing in the sight of God. The way, what does the Bible say? The Bible says, right? Be led by the Spirit of God. When you do that, you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. When you walk in the truth, when you walk by the Spirit of God, when you walk with what the Spirit of God reveals to you, your own desires that are within, that you love, that are sinful, they have no power in you. The power of sin to entice you and to present itself as a pleasing thing when it's about to kill you five minutes later, it's just not going to have enough power on you. That's what God is promising to do. He wants to transform us from within. He wants to transform our minds. Guess what happens when your mind is transformed? When your mind is transformed, your heart will gradually be transformed. Your heart meaning your inner being, who you are inside except this body. And when your heart is transformed, if who you are inside is transformed, what you do with your life, what flows out of your heart, how you speak, how you think, how you act will automatically be transformed. It's, it's like your heart is what controls who you are and how you behave. Uh, so this is what God plans to do. He wants to, that idea, instruct is to make someone intelligent and wise. He wants to advise us. He says, I will counsel you with my eye upon you. Not only does he want to teach us, does he want to give us instructions on how to live. Not only does he want to keep us in this path of righteousness from veering off or turning back and going in the opposite direction. But he also wants to give us advice, which is a living instruction based on specifically me, based on specifically what I'm going through right now. He's going to give me advice. No, don't do that. That's not acceptable. That's not good. Repent here. Keep doing that. That's good. That's advice right there. And he says, I will keep my eye upon you. So you see, this is a living thing. God is giving us feedback on which way to go to find our rest, to be protected by him, to remain in the joy that he gives, regardless of our sins. But he says, be not like a horse or a mule without understanding which must be curbed with a bit and bridle, or it will not stay near you. We are not created to be like the rest of creation, the rest of the animals. Psalm 49 gives you a, like a, a vivid picture of what, what it's like. Man in his pomp, he says, man in his rebellion, man in his own self-confidence, basically, yet without understanding, is like the beast that perished. I want you to take two things from that, from that verse right there. That's Psalm 49, 20. It's telling us when we follow our own counsel, which is with a sinful heart, right? We perish just like animals do, in the sense that just, we're reduced to being just natural creatures, right? So anything 
anything will destroy us. Like those troubles that we are saved from by the mercy of God, that's not going to happen. Anything will take us. That's what Jesus was talking about, about repentance when I quoted earlier. But the other thing is, like the animals, they're not meant to avoid things based on, based on understanding. I mean, we put bit and bridle on horses and mules, not only because they have to go in the way we want them, which is good, because that's what we keep them for, to transport us from one place to the other. I mean, imagine getting into your car, and it starts up and goes where it wants. That's not your car anymore. Right? You don't need that kind of car, which goes when it wants, where it wants. You want a car to take you where you want to take it. That's the first thing. The second thing is, they're not intelligent enough to avoid, let's say, predators, to think for the future, to think about, oh, I didn't eat last night, I should eat right now, or I should take some rest. They're not like that. They just do instinctively what they have. So God is telling, to, telling us, don't be like that. I don't have to put a bit and bridle. Bit and bridle is like, the bit is the part where the holes kind of, like, you put it in the mouth and it like, grips it. And the bridle is the part, the whole assembly that you use to control the horse, right? That's, that's, it. it's not a mystery. But like, don't be instruct, like, don't be led like that by God, where we don't have understanding. We keep falling into sin. We keep like thinking our desires and our sinful nature is fine and we can survive in the world. Don't do that. Especially when the living God is trying to instruct you. Especially when the one who sees all of your sin that you don't even see and still loves you, is there to tell you, that's not a good way to go. So what do we do for horses and mules when we use them for our transportation? We increase their lifespan. We keep them from trouble. We feed them. We take care of them. We make sure they're put in a barn away from predators. We make sure they have the best chance possible. But that's us humans. We do evil to animals all the time. So it could be hard for us to imagine God from there. No, God is infinitely holy. He's good. His plans are, you can't serve God. You, he doesn't need a horse to go from one place to the other. He doesn't need us. He loves us. That's the whole point. And He's good to us. Even if we don't even understand that He's good to us. And He knows all of our evil. And He still is good to us. And He loves us. So don't be like that. Don't be like this person that has to be told to go this way like a horse or that way like a horse. Be the person who gets the teaching of the Lord, the instruction of the Lord, the advice of the Lord. When the Lord opens your heart to your sin, repent. Turn from it. He's telling you which way to go. When the Lord gives you an opportunity, a free time, sit down and learn His Word. When the Lord brings you into the church like this, when we congregate together, listen. Truly listen. Learn, ask, interact, serve the Lord, and He will teach you which way you ought to go. You will rejoice in this new life that He gives you. For the sake of time, I'm going to conclude here. So, David says, Many are the sorrows of the wicked, but the steadfast love but steadfast love, sorry, surrounds the one who trusts in the Lord. Be glad in the Lord and rejoice, O righteous, and shout for joy, he says. 
all you upright in heart. So God told us, guys, I mean, I could, I could talk to you guys, like, because we live in the same period of time. We spend so much time and we have so much knowledge about so many things. But then, like, if I ask you how much time do you spend investing in getting to know the Lord in the Word of God? How much time do you spend in the church? How much time do you spend fellowshipping with saints, brothers and sisters? How much love do you have for the church? How much love do you have for believers? How much love do you have for God? We might not even think about these ideas, let alone invest in them. God is saying, don't be like that. That's just not good for you. But here, the Lord is teaching us. David is saying, you know what? Like, those people that live like that are non-believers. Like, the mules and the horses. Like, they don't use any of God's understanding that he gives. God's teaching that he, he gives. That instruction and wisdom. Those who have a living relationship with him that are repentant so that he may advise them. Those kinds of people, they have many sorrows he, he wants us to really know like they don't even know that there's a solution to sin i mean they sit down and realize their whole life is just completely useless humanity is under the pressure of this world is so broken that there is no solution for it i'm just gonna try to distract for myself from the sorrow of this life is basically how we lived as non-believers and how the, the world lives apart from Christ. Because sin keeps the human heart humble. We see the destructive nature of what we do. We try to suppress it. We try to hide it. We try to claim. It doesn't mean anything. Whatever. It doesn't mean we can reconcile it. There is stress that comes with it. There is pain. There is disease. There is broken relationships. There is you want to do good with people. You want to love them. You want to enjoy life with them you want to do amazing things together to overcome the burdens of everyday life you can't because of broken relationships not because other people broke it because we both contribute to it we all contribute to it many are the sorrows of the wicked they have no solution they don't even understand that they're the ones causing the problem most of the times if not all the time they're just oppressed and struggling which is why we as believers should have the compassion to tell them the truth, which is sharing the gospel. We should love them enough to suffer with them in order to get the truth to them. But then, when it comes to those who believe in God, those who are repentant, he says, steadfast love. I can't believe this, but the love of God surrounds us in our condition. Not when we repent because we're good, we're amazing, we're, we're performing this way. He loves us now. That's why he's calling us to repentance. God disciplines every son whom he loves, is what the scripture says. Even when you're sin, you're trying to hide it, and your sin turns on you, and it makes life unbearable for you, that's the love of God. God, because he loves you, when you don't repent, he disciplines you. It's not like that for the world. They're fine sinning, and they don't even consider sin, sin. It's fine. It's just everyday, regular life. So know that the love of the Lord, unending, unchanging, uncircum like non-circumstantial love of God is with us 
They're struggling with sorrow. We're basking in the love of God. For the one who trusts in Yahweh, he says. The one who believes in God through Christ. The one who believes in the one who delivers us from all sin. The one who believes in the God who sent his one and only beloved perfect son to pay for the evil that we have committed. He died. He rose from the dead. And he's seated at the right side of God. He sent his Holy Spirit to us as a gift, as a down payment for a guarantee into eternal life. That's the God we have. The one who trusts in that, the one who repents according to that, the one who learns, who follows God's instruction according to that, God has done this amazing thing. So we are in this love. So what's left for us? Be glad in the Lord, David says. That glad is to brighten. Let your phrase be bright. Let your heart be lighthearted, excited. Jumpy, basically. Don't stop there. He says, rejoice. Rejoice is literally to spin around. It also has this connotation of rejoice and fear. So this is like faithful, biblical reverence for God. Awe. And not even being able to control yourself that you're spinning around, basically. You can't. Control the excitement of how amazing this is. Then finally, he says, shout for joy. This is the very same word that we used earlier, how God rebukes the storms in our lives. What does that create in us? That creates in us this idea of a ringing cry, this, this joy that we cannot contain, that we have to speak out loud. That's it. This is what we have. So I hope by this time you see what the Lord is saying to us. This idea of happiness used to be like specifically left for this God's idols, which people believe to be above humanity. They got everything figured out. They don't care about the cares of life and the struggles of life. They're above it. That's what people used to think or believe, still do. Or it's, it's this idea like people believe the elite, the people who have money, right? They didn't have to care like everybody about what to eat, what to get and stuff like that. So they were above society. They were happy. That's possibly what we believe still now, which is sad. Or the wealthy, like those, like both with connections and like political power or whatever, or celebrity status, whatever we call it, and the healthy and the fed, all these people, we think like they're above life, they're doing great. Like they don't have to worry about disease because they're healthy, or they don't have to worry about like where their next bill is gonna come from. They must be happy if they don't care about that. That's what we believe to be happiness. Jesus comes in the Beatitudes and destroys that idea of happiness. He says, the lowly, the poor, the hungry, the thirsty, the meek, those who are mourning, those are happy. Why? Because happiness has nothing to do with human beings can do. Happiness has to do with truly dealing with the consequences of sin. Truly being 
in a covenant relationship with the living God. Happiness has to do with the Lord Himself, in Himself, reconciling human fallenness. So a relationship with the living God is what true happiness is like. When you have a relationship with the living God, guess what I just taught you? You don't have to care about all the troubles in your life, except focus in your relationship with the Lord and repent before Him and walk humbly before Him. So this is what Psalm 32 has to do with us. Let us pray and conclude. Lord, we thank you so much for your goodness and for your love and for your protection upon us, Lord. Now that we have seen your love, I pray that we get to the title where your grace, God's grace towards us in happiness. That our affections and our joy may be fixed on you, that we may realize after going through this psalm, it's not about what we do. It's not about how amazing we are. It's not about what we deserve. It's not about hope in material things. It's not about hope in this world. It's not about what the world calls nice and exciting and happy. It's about being in a relationship with you. It's about you, Lord. You are the one who rescues us. You are the one who loves us in our current condition. You are the one who has hope for eternal life for us. You are the one who laid down the life of your son for us on our behalf, Lord. You are the one who has purpose to teach us, to instruct us, to equip us, to empower us in this life, that we may live a life and that we may overcome the enemy that we may have this sweet fellowship with you all the days of our lives, that no matter how high the waves get, no matter how much trouble is surrounding us, that we may truly know that we are safe in the midst of it. We can rejoice, not because there are no troubles in life, but within the trouble, your deliverance, your protection, your, your covering of us is much greater than all the troubles that we can face. And all of this is your grace and your love towards us. Lord. So Father, I pray that you encourage our hearts, that you lead us to realize how amazing you are and how much it took the blood of the living Christ to save us. Today, he loves us and he intercedes for us and he leads us. He lives in us through his spirit. So Father, give us this gladness in heart. Give us this fixed focus on who you are and pleasing you and living with you and learning from you, Lord, hearing from you. When you lead us to repentance, let us not do it begrudgingly, but let us rejoice that you have opened our eyes to see our sin and iniquity, that we may repent and turn from you. Lord, I pray if there is anyone in this place right now who did not see the encouragement of that, that your spirit may open their eyes to it, Lord. Open all of our eyes to constantly slow down and ponder and meditate on these truths, that we may live in harmony, in joy, in gladness of heart, in rejoicing before you always, and that we may honor your name and we may find all of joy and overflowing happiness that surpasses any other happiness that could be offered to us in this life. 
that we may be continually happy and joyful and above all things in all circumstances, whether it's a time of joy and simplicity or a time of trouble. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Uh, we are done for today. Have a great Sunday.